Overcome. Over the last month or so, we have been in a series entitled Overcome. We've been talking about how to gain victory over the giants in our lives. Uh, The series is based on one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. It's the story of David and Goliath. Uh, In that story, found in 1 Samuel 17, uh, God's people are about to go to war against an enemy nation they have fought many times before, a nation known as the Philistines. But in this particular story, 1 Samuel 17, uh, no one's fighting at all. Uh, In fact, no one has been fighting for quite a long time. Everybody's just kind of standing around, staring at each other as the story begins. And here's why. The author of the story tells that for 40 days straight, a behemoth of a man, this 10-foot giant named Goliath, the strongest, the fiercest, most likely the hairiest of all the Philistines, comes out. And he proposes a challenge to the Israelite army. He says, instead of both uh, nations fighting each other, let's just pick one man from each side to fight each other. I'm the representative from the Philistines. You pick the bravest man from your side, and we will fight to the death. And the fate of that one fight will determine the fate of both countries. But in addition to issuing the challenge, Goliath also hurls insults. That's just what big, hairy guys do, right? And it's, it's insults that are uh, based around Israelites' manhood, but also their very maker. See, the giant would come out into a valley known as the Valley of Elah, and he would say something like this every single morning, you, you Israelites, you're a bunch of pitiful little cowards. You are all so weak, so puny, so anemic, he would say. You're like a bunch of little girls, even worse, a bunch of little dogs, just like your pathetic king and just like your pathetic God. And he would spit on the ground, I'm sure. That's what you do after you talk trash. Right? He would say, you would never defeat me. You will never be able to defeat me. You know it, and I know it. And that's why no one's coming out to fight. Now, we typically chalk the story up as a children's tale, don't we? You, you reenact it during VBS or during kids' church to get the kids all excited. You pick the tallest high schooler you can find and a little, you know, twerpy uh, elementary school kid, and you reenact David and Goliath. But I hope that you're seeing through the course of this series that this story, it's, it's actually our story. Many of us find ourselves in the exact same position that the Israelites did that day. See, we're each facing, in one way or another, a giant, an obstacle, a problem in this life, right? It feels insurmountable, just like that 10-foot giant did thousands of years ago. For us, it could be a hurt, a habit, a a character flaw, a mindset, a a vice, maybe a difficult situation, maybe a difficult person. It could be a wound. It could be a worry. But someone or something, if we had time to sit and talk, is standing up to you, and more than that, it's standing against you. It's trying to limit you and and stop you and defeat you at so many different levels. And just like the case in 1 Samuel 17, with each passing day, our hope and and our strength and our courage, it gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And the giant's presence and its threats and its, its, uh, its bravado, if you will, get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it says for 40 days straight, the Israelites were powerless to do anything against Goliath. And many of us say, oh, 40 days, if it were only that short, it's been years for me that I felt totally powerless against this enemy. And we like to think in our better days that we're strong enough or smart enough or charismatic enough to overcome the enemy on our own, but we just can't. Even if we do try to stand up and fight, chances are we've already lost the battle. 
And we're so sick and tired of losing it. You see, we need somebody to come to our rescue. We need somebody to come to our aid. Just like in the original story, someone's got to come out of nowhere, come out of the blue to rescue us. Someone no one ever expected, someone no one ever saw coming. And luckily for us, that someone has come, right? That someone is Jesus. Jesus is our David. You see, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection to life, he has defeated, he has overcome any giant, every obstacle, any and every problem that we face in this life. And his promise is that he will now give us the power to do the same. You with me? So far in this series, we've talked specifically about a couple of giants. Uh, The first was the giant of fear. And you overcome the giant of fear in and through faith. Let's review real fast. In and through this belief that that the Lord is with you, he's for you, he's in you, he's behind you, he's all around you, he's even underneath you holding you up. It's the promise and it's the faith of Isaiah 41.10. Believing that you are not alone, that nothing is too hard for you, that someone does really care about you, that even if the worst case scenario plays itself out in even worst ways than you can imagine, you're still going to be okay because of Isaiah 41.10. You overcome the, the giant of fear through faith. You overcome the giant of guilt, which we talked about last week, through grace. If you weren't here with us, if you were out gallivanting around from Memorial Day weekend, I'm, I'm jealous of you. Some of us have to work on the weekends. <sighs> But if you weren't here, go back and listen to that message because many of us deal with the giant of guilt. But you overcome that giant through grace, the understanding that God's forgiveness, when he says, I forgive you, that is so big, it is so good, it is so complete, as described in Psalm 32, 5, that God not only wipes away your sin, but he also wipes away your guilt. He not only takes away your your failures, but he takes away those negative feelings that we typically always carry around with us as it pertains to our failures. You cleansed me of my guilt, the psalmist says. He takes away the condemnatory feelings as well as your faults. I love that about our God. And this morning, I'm going to talk about a giant that comes in lots of different shapes and sizes. Uh, This particular giant shows up in the NBA playoffs uh, when LeBron shoves someone's dunk back in their face. This giant shows up in gym class when you are the last one picked for the game. This giant shows up in an email stating that although you were a top candidate and we really loved your resume, we've gone in a different direction and we've chosen somebody else. What's the giant that I'm talking about? Rejection. The giant of rejection. Rejection is something that every single one of us has or will have to deal with, from being stood up on a date to being turned down for a promotion or even a home loan, from not getting as many likes as you wanted on that one post to not being invited to that party that everybody else seemed to be invited to. Rejection is a huge part of our reality. But as I was thinking about it, uh, breakups. Breakups have to be some of the worst types and forms of rejection out there, don't you think? It's never easy to end a a romantic relationship, but there are certain ways to do it that limit the damage, that that limit the pain, that that limit the sense of rejection. Unfortunately, the people that sent these text messages didn't get that memo. Here's some of the worst breakup texts I've ever seen. Uh, Take a look at some of these. Hey, I have to tell you something. Hey, I do too. Okay, let's say it at the same time. Okay, one, two, three. Can we break up? Will you marry me? Oh... That would be an awkward moment. How about this one? Hey, hey, we need to talk, yeah? Look, our relationship is like doing push-ups on your knees. It's just not really working out. What? OMG, did you just break up with me? 
That would be tough, right? That would be tough. But this is probably the worst one. I-L-Y. Oh, spell it out. It'll make it more special. I'm leaving you. That hurts, right? Oh, that is rejection of the worst kind. Uh, I read a story this past week, though, about a 26-year-old girl named L. This has to be the worst breakup story I've ever heard in my life. I had to share it with you. Uh, my boyfriend and I were on the rocks. Our relationship was on the rocks. But months before, his parents bought us both tickets to fly out to Montana for a family wedding. He didn't think I should go, but the ticket was non-refundable, so we moved forward with our plans. Well, he drove us to the airport, but didn't mention he had my ticket canceled. I learned that little piece of information when the check-in clerk told me, sorry, ma'am, your ticket doesn't exist anymore. I turned to my boyfriend and he says, well, I'll miss my flight if I don't go now. And I'd offer you my car, but I know you don't drive a stick, so maybe you can just call a cab. See ya. And he took off down the terminal. So there I was, she says, stranded 75 miles from home. He never even called to see if I made it home. You can be sure I've learned to drive a stick since then. That is tough. But for many of us, rejection is no laughing matter, right? I'm sure Elle recovered from that experience, but many of us have yet to recover from our experiences and the rejection that we have personally experienced. Because you see, the pain you feel when a spouse leaves you, when your parents abandon you, when you get ostracized by a family or a faith community for certain lifestyle choices, when you're told by a close friend that you're not cool enough anymore, you're told by an employer or an agent or a publisher you're not talented enough. See, all of those forms of rejection, and there's so many others, all of those forms of rejection are so painful. And for many of us, they can be paralyzing. Can they not? They can stop us dead in our tracks. And it's hard to get moving ever again. Rejection of any kind, whether it's on the playground or on the internet or even in the corporate office, it communicates that we're not loved, that, that we're not wanted, that we're not valued, that we don't have what it takes or what other people want. And that thought can oftentimes be more painful than even the worst physical pain that we experience. See, scientists recently have discovered that the same area of our brain that, that kind of goes off, if you will, when we experience physical pain is the exact same part of the brain that goes off when we experience rejection. You've seen those brains, right, where they're all different colors and, and different things go off and they're sensitive. I'm not sure how it all works. But they say when you experience rejection, it's like you got hurt really bad physically. In fact, it's even worse. The sensors are off the charts when you feel rejection. Um, think, think about this, kind of prove this point to you. Think about a time when you were hurt physically, when you experienced something really painful physically. Uh, for me, it was my freshman year of, 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 of high school. I was playing football, and I knew something was wrong when I looked down, and my right forearm made a right angle. That's not a good thing, right? But now as I think back to that experience, it's like, oh, yeah, that was pretty painful. But I, I'm not like crying, like, oh, my gosh, my arm, it hurts so bad right now. I understood it, it hurt at the time, but over the course of time, things are better. And, and my memory, even though it's still very real, it doesn't take me back to the actual pain I experienced in that moment. But let's try something else now. I want you to think of a really painful rejection that you've experienced in this life. Don't do that. Just take my word for this, okay? But you'll be flooded, I guarantee you, with, with a, a whole plethora of emotions that will take you back almost to that very moment. And you will feel as if you were rejected just this morning right? All of the emotion will come and your brain will start to go crazy yet again. And you can be in the fetal position in the corner within a matter of minutes just by remembering that moment, right? So we can remember physical pain and we're like, yeah, man, I got over it, whatever. But remembering emotional pain, remembering relational pain, remembering rejection takes us right back there. 
That's how hardcore it is. That's how embedded it is in our, in our brains. And like all the other giants in this series, this one shows up in different ways. It goes by different names. So maybe you're thinking, oh, rejection, I don't really struggle with that. Well, rejection has a few cousins that maybe you do struggle with. Louis Giglio in his book, uh, Goliath Must Fall, says it this way. The giant that we're talking about this morning has cousins on both sides of the family. The two sides don't look anything alike, though. On one side of the family, you have insecurity, low self-esteem, low self-worth, inferiority, even self-hate. On the other side of the family, we don't often think they're related, but they are. You have a drive to succeed, perfectionism, winning at all costs, being an overachiever, and wanting to prove to other people that they are wrong. All of these are part of the same dysfunctional family called rejection. And chances are, if we were honest, we each kind of struggle with one end of the spectrum, either being rejected at times or the other end of the spectrum, fighting rejection off and doing everything we can so we're not rejected. We struggle with one or the other or maybe all of it. So whether you've been rejected or working ridiculously hard to not be rejected, we feel the presence of this giant almost on a daily basis, do we not? And this giant can go from undetectable to unstoppable in a matter of minutes. It's amazing how one little seed of rejection can be planted, even um, non-maliciously, but it can be planted and suddenly it can turn into a giant redwood that's consuming and taking over our lives. We often respond to rejection by finding fault in ourselves, do we not? We kind of kick ourselves when we're down when it comes to rejection. We smack our self-esteem and do a pulp, right? When rejected, we think to ourselves, you're so stupid for thinking that was even possible. You're so, you're so dumb for trying that. You knew it wasn't going to work out. Why did you get your hopes up in the first place, moron? Right? We say things like, I don't deserve this good thing. I'm obviously not good enough to have this. If only I would have. I wish I never would have. I lost my shot. I lost my chance. God must be punishing me for such and such now. It's amazing how when we're rejected, we turn all of that energy and all that angst, we just turn it inward and we start to beat ourselves up maybe more so than the person who rejected us. One form of rejection can send us into a vicious tailspin, right? We don't get the promotion at work, and so we assume the employer is going to fire us the next day and we'll never find another job again. No, you just, you just didn't get the promotion. That's all. If the fir first date goes poorly, we assume, and we are super ugly, we're a really bad conversationist, we're going to die alone. No, you just, you just had a bad first date. If we get a handful of likes, we thought we were going to get thousands of likes on a certain post, right? We assume no one likes us anymore, and they think our life is pathetic. No, they just weren't on the internet when you posted that. That's all. But don't we do that? We take rejection, and the enemy, the giant, just allows it to become more and more and more. On the story of David and Goliath, uh, young David faced a ton of rejection as well. If you have a Bible, 1 Samuel 17, I want you to think back to that story uh, David in this story is nothing more than a young teenager at best. He's too young, in fact, to actually be in the army, right? He's relegated to being a water boy. The text tells us that he delivers bread and cheese to the men who are actually on the battlefield, which are all of his older brothers. Well, when he's there one day delivering the goods for the soldiers, he hears the giant Goliath talking trash. He hears him taunting the army and teasing them about the power of their God. And so he steps up and he wants to figure out, how do we shut that guy up? We read this, 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? 
I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. This is classic older sibling rejecting little sibling, right? Younger sibling. You can hear the sarcasm and the bite in Eliab's words. What are you doing here, boy? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? This is no place for someone like a child, David. We're dealing with soldiers here, not sheep. So run along. Get out of here, in other words. Now, rejection from family can oftentimes be some of the most hurtful and painful there is. Right, folks you assumed would always love you, always protect you, always have your back can sometimes be the ones who put the knife in your back. And David understood that. And in a perfect world, Eliab would have been super excited and proud of David, not, not put off by him. In a perfect world, I was thinking about it this week, uh, Eliab would have been like, hey, everybody, this is my little brother David. Yeah, he was anointed king. He's going to be king one day. Oh, I'm so glad you're here, man. Thanks for the bread and the cheese, right? Little noogie on top of the head. It wasn't like that at all. It wasn't like that at all. Eliab could have asked, man, man, I said, I'm so glad that you're here, David, man. We're kind of stuck. We don't really know what to do. Any ideas on how to take that giant out? What do you think, man? Oh, no, he wasn't proud of him. He was totally put off by him. It was the opposite, right? It was, it was like this older sibling thing, maybe. Maybe it was the fact that Eliab was jealous that, that David had been anointed king. Maybe it was David's dream from back in the day, if you remember that story. David's like, hey, one day my whole family's going to bow down to me. Yeah, that was kind of an awkward moment, Right? I don't know what it was, but Eliab rejected David in this moment. Family. And many of us know exactly how painful that can be. When a family member turns to you and say, says, you don't belong here anymore. Get out. Well, Eliab wasn't alone. After uh, David said that he wanted to fight Goliath, the king at the time, a man by the name of Saul, caught wind of it and said, there's actually someone that wants to step up and fight Goliath. Well, we'll bring him in. This is what the king said, though, 1 Samuel 17, 33. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. He's been a man of war since his youth. In other words, David, you can't do this. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough to pull this off. I don't think Saul was saying these things in a really hateful, malicious way, but he still said them, and they still hurt, do they not? And we know that to be true because they hurt when someone says something similar to us. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not qualified enough. You don't have what it takes. You're not what we're looking for. We've all heard those words in one form or another, and they're like daggers. Or they're not, they just hurt so badly. They feel like a direct assault on our, our identity and our worth and our value. You can't do it. You're not good enough to be the one. Stop fooling yourself and stop trying to convince everybody else that you can do this. Get out. Believe it or not, though, the rejection David faced in this story, it didn't stop there. Uh, David ends up standing toe-to-toe with Goliath, and guess who wants to take a jab at him next? The giant himself. 1 Samuel 17, verse 42. When the Philistine looked around and saw David, he derided and disparaged him because he was just a young man with a ruddy complexion and a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with a shepherd's staff? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me, I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Church, this is, this is an example of a very bad day. 
especially when it comes to the giant of rejection. David cannot win. His family rejects him at the front end of the story. His friend, the king, rejects him in the middle of the story. And now his foe is rejecting him here at the end of the story. In this text, the giant laughs in the face of David because he is nothing more than a baby-faced kid. That term, a ruddy complexion, it sounds really like manly to us. Ooh, he had a ruddy complexion. Mmm, sexy. No, no, no. Ruddy complexion means baby-faced. It meant that he was not a man in any sense of the word. It's as if the giant is saying, you're choosing a cabbage patch kid to come and fight me. That's the one you've selected to represent you. He's too cute to enter into combat. That's what the giant is saying. So his brother rejects him by questioning his motives. His king rejects him by questioning his might. And his enemy rejects him by questioning his manhood. If there's ever a poster child for rejection, young David in this story would be it. But David overcame all of that rejection. He overcame all of it to do incredible things for the Lord. And the same can be true for you. Let me show you how. The way you deal with rejection, according to leadership guru John Maxwell, is to reject it. Reject rejection. I know it sounds overly simple, but there's there's a ton of truth to it. Let's frame it in a little bit more of a biblical context. The way we overcome rejection is by clinging to our selection. Everybody say that out loud with me. The way to overcome rejection is by clinging to our selection. One more time. The way to overcome rejection is to cling to our selection. There's a ton of debate and disagreement out there in the the Christian world in particular when it comes to the issues of predestination and free will. If you're not familiar with that, it's just basically uh, two terms on opposite ends of the spectrum to describe how much God controls the happenings of the world versus how much we control the happenings of the world. But because of that disagreement, and some folks don't want to go to this extreme, and some folks don't want to go to this extreme, we just, we just don't really talk a whole lot about any of it, which is so sad because then we miss out on some of the most important life-giving truths in all of Scripture. This is a giant killing truth, and you have to hear it today. You didn't choose God. God chose you. Each and every one of us. That, that is, first and foremost, he picked you. The scripture is clear. I'm going to just overwhelm you with some verses. First Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen people, royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Because the Lord loves you. He's keeping the oath that he swore to the fathers. First Thessalonians 1, 4. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you. He's chosen you to be his own people. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen ones? Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us now in the one that he loves. Because I could go on and on and on. The scripture makes it clear. Long before you knew about God, he knew about you. 
Long before you liked God, He really liked you. In fact, the Scripture says He loves you. Long before anyone ever said no to you, God said yes to you. Long before anybody ever pushed you away, God pulled you close. Long before anybody ever rejected you, God selected you. God has chosen you. They might be sitting here and they're like, well, how do I know if I've been chosen? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been chosen. Because you cannot come to that belief, you cannot come into that relationship without having been chosen. God made all of that possible. He prompted your heart. He stirred your spirit. He breathed life into your soul so you could make that decision. You were dead, Lazarus, in the tomb. No chance. And then Jesus came to you and breathed life into you. He chose you to believe in the Son. He chose you to have life in the Spirit. He chose you to become part of the family. He chose you to be an instrument of hope and and healing to this world. He chose you. He chose you to love Him, to know Him, to serve Him, to follow Him. You only do all of those things because you are chosen to do those things. You've been handpicked. You've been selected to do all that. Jesus said the same thing, John 6, 44. No one can come to me. You can't even come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you, giving you the desire to come to me. And I will raise all of those folks up from the dead on the last day. See, and it's only in clinging to our heavenly selection that we'll be able to overcome any form of earthly rejection. You with me? It's only in clinging to this heavenly selection that we'll be able to overcome earthly rejection. Let me give you an example of this. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest pastors, preachers, evangelists of all time, was rejected far more than even young David in the story of David and Goliath. He was probably rejected more than anybody else in human history. He got it from his friends, his family, his foes. Jews rejected him, Gentiles rejected him, religious people, non-religious, family, strangers. Everybody rejected Paul. Everybody rejected this guy. And how did he make it through? How did he persevere? How did he overcome? He focused on his divine election. He focused on his divine selection. In nearly every single letter that Paul wrote, he begins it with these words. This letter is from Paul, an apostle of Christ, personally chosen by God. See, that's how you overcome any and every form of earthly rejection. Go ahead, reject me out here. I don't really care because one has selected me up there. That's all that really matters. And this one selection does away with or at least makes light of all the other rejections that I might experience in this life. I love that line. And now this is your challenge this week. I want you to start every email, every text, every Facebook post, every Instagram, everyone with that, those words. I've been personally chosen by God. That's the only way you're going to overcome the rejection that's going to come in this world. You've got to believe you've been selected. You've been selected by God himself, chosen by the Lord of heaven and earth. You see, I could not have, and I would not have come to know God. I could not have, and I would not have come to have life now or forever. I could not have, and I would not have experienced forgiveness, mercy, grace, the Spirit, if God hadn't chosen me. You don't just stumble across those things. That's like right place, right time. You were born to the right family. Oh, lucky you had Christian parents. It has nothing to do with that. You were chosen for the beginning of the world. Chosen to be a Christian, chosen to be like Jesus, chosen to live with him forever. 
Think about adoption, right? That's the metaphor and analogy that the scripture uses. Think about how that process works here in the world. Does the kid have much say in the process? Does the kid really do a whole lot? I don't really like that family. That guy's got a bald head and a big nose. I'm just not really excited about him. No. What does the kid do? The kid simply accepts the gift of being chosen by the family. The family does all the hard work. The father of the family does all the hard work going in and selecting the kid out of so many. It's such a difficult decision. I don't know which I'm going to pick this one. My heart is just stirred towards that one right there. And the one who is adopted just gets to enjoy the lavish love, right? And the fact that they've been chosen. That's how it is with us. We've been chosen. We've been selected by God. The great God of the universe, even though he probably should have rejected me long ago, he chose me and he chose you. And that's why you're here. Even if your wife, you know, dragged you here this morning or even if you just come because you don't really have anything better to do on Sunday mornings when the NFL is not on. I don't know what is going on. But you know why you're here? Do you know why you like to worship? Do you know why there's some mornings you're like, man, I just really want to get in this book right now. You know why you love to serve people? You know why that Feed My Starving Children event is appealing to you? Do you know why all of that happens? This is because you're a good person. This is because, oh, I kind of like those things. It's because you've been chosen. All of that is, is a, a manifestation of you being chosen by heaven. You love to worship and help and serve and read and study and become more like Jesus because you've been chosen. You've been chosen by God. You're not here by accident. You're not a Christian by accident. You've been chosen by God chosen by him. And I just want you to just revel in that truth for a little while. You don't have to prove anything anymore to anyone. Because see, you were chosen when you were nothing. So you don't have to worry about being something now, right, moving forward. You don't have to earn or work for your selection. It's the adoption process. It wasn't because you were like cooler than all the other kids. It wasn't because you were cleaner or because you had more to offer than all the other kids. No, it's just because the father picked you. He just picked you because he loved you. That love is never going to change. So I don't care, church. I'm going to invite the band up real fast. We're going to spend a few minutes in communion and in worship. I don't care. I don't care how many times you have been rejected in this life. I don't care if it's come from family. I don't care if it's come through your friendships. I don't care if it's come through all your foes. I don't care how many times you've been rejected. I don't care if it happened on the basketball court or at the airport when you couldn't drive a stick shift. I don't care when it happened or how often it happened or who did it. I don't care about that. One thing matters. No matter how many times you have been rejected, there is one truth that trumps all of those. You have been selected. You've been selected by the great God of the universe to be his treasured possession, to be his son and his daughter, to be with him forever, to experience life now and for all of eternity. And it's that truth, it's that belief that I have been selected. That truth is a giant slaying truth. That's what it takes to overcome the giant of rejection. I don't care. I don't care what happens out here. I know one thing has happened right here. I've been selected. Let me pray that over us and we'll enter into a time together. God, what an amazing God you are. What could we possibly say right now in this moment? Thank you. Lord, those words just seem so silly. They seem so insufficient, so insignificant. You have chosen us, God. Out of all the, the people in the world, out of all the nations, out of all those who have lived throughout all the time, you've chosen each and every one of us, God. Before we were even born, you knew our name. You knew where we would live, when we would live, and you chose us to come to you. You drew us close, God. 
We would have never wanted Jesus on our own. We would have never understood or, or come to have a relationship with Jesus by ourselves, God. You had to stir that within us. You had to breathe that life back into us. You had to draw us close, and you did. Thank you, God. So what is man, then, that we should be so worried about his rejection of us? An employer, a Facebook post, even a romantic relationship, God? a bank, if they reject us, who cares? So be it. We have been selected by you. Selected by you. God, help us just to sit in that truth for a little bit this morning. And God, we're going to enter into some some communion now, a meal that you established for us, a time where we could remember just how important we are to you. That's what this meal is all about, God. We matter so much to you that you sent Jesus. You loved us so much that you sent Jesus, that you broke his body apart, that you spilled his blood for us, God. We are worth Jesus to you. That's how much we are worth. That's how badly you want to be with us. That's how important our selection is. And so this morning, God, as we go to the table and we take those elements, the bread representing Jesus' body and and the juice representing his blood, would we remember this is what we are worth to you. We are worth Jesus to you. That's how much you love us. That's the price you are willing to pay for adoption. Help us just to marvel in that truth. And I just pray the smiles on our faces, God, go from from ear to ear, that we would just sit and worship you and say thank you for choosing us. Many have rejected us, but you have chosen us. And that's all that matters and ever will. Make it so now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.